This is Bloomberg Business Week. I'm Carol Masser. And I'm Bloomberg Quick Takes Tim Stenevec. We're here every day bringing you the latest news from the world of business and finance. Plus technology, politics, economics, all harnessing the power of Business Week reporters and editors. Not to mention our 2,700 journalists and analysts in more than 120 countries. You can download Bloomberg Business Week on iTunes, SoundCloud, or Bloomberg.com. You can also listen to our radio show at 2 p.m. Eastern Time on Bloomberg Radio. Or watch us on YouTube. Search Bloomberg Global News. Hey, one thing we want to bring to your attention, uh, it went public via SPAC and a SPAC backed by venture capitalist investor Jamath Paliapatia. It started trading today on the NASDAQ. We're talking about the fintech social finance or SoFi raising roughly $2.4 billion to fuel growth at the company. Let's get into it with SoFi CEO Anthony Noto, former COO and CFO over at Twitter, former Goldman Sachs partner overseeing tech and media. He joins us on the phone in San Francisco. Anthony, great to have you here on Bloomberg Business Week on Bloomberg Radio. Congratulations. Why? do this through a SPAC and, SPAC and not a traditional IPO? Um, you know, I think each company has to evaluate the different ways to go public based on their facts and circumstances. And for us, this was a great option. We had a few things to consider. First, um, we, we wanted to convert our capital structure that was largely preferred shares to common shares. That was a necessity for two reasons. One, in order to file with the Federal Reserve uh, for a bank charter. Uh, we needed to have common equity. Second, to become a public company, uh, we also needed to make that conversion. Uh, we also had two capital needs. First, um, we had bought Galileo in March of 2020, um, and with that came a seller note, and that note was going to be due in March of 2021, so that was one capital need. A second capital need was to finance the bank if and when we were able to achieve a charter. Um, and so we were raising private uh, money at the time, and we got approached by a number of investors that wanted to put even more capital into the company and also considered um, supporting us in, go- in going public. And so what we ended up doing was choosing a private round with T. Rowe uh, Price, who invested $375 million, and we closed that um, on or about December 27th. We launched the pipe, uh, confidential pipe process on the 28th, uh, and we were able to complete that by the 31st and then announced the combination of those two and the third leg of the stool, which was a SPAC merger with uh, Social Capital, head of Sophia 5, um, on January 4th. And the combination of those three pieces made it a unique approach for us to raise capital and go public at the same time. And it was the right outcome for us versus a regular way IPO or mm-hmm. a direct listing. Well, no shortage of SPACs out there. So why Social Capital, head of Sophia, founded by uh, Chamath Paliapatia? We were approached by a number of different um, um, SPACs, and um, we were confident that we were ready to become a public company. We knew we would have to go through a pretty detailed, um, more detailed process from a diligence standpoint than going public because it's a merger. Um, and we thought that uh, Tomas' team brought one, first and foremost, a strategic um, perspective to the table for us and that we could partner on different strategic um, opportunities uh, over time. Uh, number two, um, they had great experience in conducting the type of diligence of a company like us as they've done with other companies to, m- to make sure they brought the credibility to the pipe investors when they made, when they made the uh, announcement and brought us to pipe investors. Uh, three, they had great experience in executing SPACs. And so the combination of strategic value, um, the diligence process that we knew would bring incremental credibility to the pipe investors, uh, and then three, um, expertise and having done this before were, were the three factors and why we, we chose social capital. It was a tough decision. We brought three options to the board. 
it came down to the wire and, and the board uh, chose social capital. So you guys are all in. There's student loans, there's personal loans, there's home loans, there's insurance, small business financing, um, investing. There's a lot on your platform. Will crypto be part of it at some point? Um, today we do offer within Invest the ability to buy single stocks without commissions, fractional shares, which we pioneered, robo-advisory accounts, which we've created ourselves. Um, we also have um, five SoFi ETFs. Um, and we do offer cryptocurrency. We offer 18 different coins. Um, we do it in a very appropriate way in that we disclose to you the volatility of that asset class and the risk that you could lose all of your money every time you put in a buy order uh, that is disclosed before you hit the hit the buy button. Um, it is an asset class that our members want, and right. we want to provide diversified selection for them. Hey, Anthony, and we've got about a minute, and then we'll come back and talk some more. But because you have an array of services that you can offer folks on the platform, what do you think is going to be the best growth opportunity, provide the best margins for you? Where's going to be the big business in your view? You know, we design each one of the businesses to be best in class from a consumer value proposition but also best-in-class unit economics. And so we design them all to be attractive on their own. Um, we do get incremental benefits when people take the second, third, or fourth product with us, but they have to stand on their own, own both from a value proposition as a consumer and a unit economic standpoint for us financially. Uh, and, and the reason why we do that is we want to meet the member where they are with mm -hmm. what they want, as what we make money on. Uh, Anthony, I want to talk a little bit about profitability and SoFi's path to profitability. You currently lose money, uh, more than $200 million in 2018, 2019, and 2020 each year. Uh, what is the path to profitability, and, and when do you get there? Well, we achieved um, positive EBITDA um, in the fourth quarter of 2020. It was our first quarter of positive EBITDA uh, since we embarked on such an ambitious strategy to become a one-stop shop and comprehensive suite financial services products on on one app um, so we made a significant amount of investment in 2019 18 and 19 and started to bear fruit of that investment in 2020 hitting positive EBITDA in the fourth quarter of 20 um, and again in uh, the first quarter of uh, 2021 um, and on a trailing 12-month basis um, we, as you'll see in our financial disclosures we've we've uh, also achieved positive EBITDA so from a profitability standpoint, as it relates to non-GAAP metric of EBITDA, which we think is the best measure for cash flow, uh, we've gotten to that point. Now, each one of our businesses is not profitable. Our, our lending business is very profitable. It's a, it's a you know, very, very well-growing business. Um, you can see the growth rates for the business in, in our filings, but it's a, it's a high grower, but also very profitable. Our technology platform is a high, even higher grower business. Um, with great profitability as well, with about 30% uh, margins. And then our financial services business, which consists of SoFi Invest, SoFi Money, and SoFi Credit Card, um, that's an acquisition business where we recoup the customer acquisition costs we make in year one over the you know year and a half to two years after we acquire them. So on a per-account basis, we may be hitting profitability, um, but because we're acquiring more customers than we currently have that are profitable, it, uh, it shows a, a loss in that, in that business, which is also seen in our financials. But we focus on unit economics for each one of our business and per loan economics uh, to make sure that overall these businesses can be great unit economic businesses individually and in, in total. And so we're balancing both growth at a high rate with uh, profitability uh, in the overall mix. One thing I'm wondering, Anthony, is whether you guys um, who are your users who are on the app 
if they're buying SoFi shares and kind of showing support for the platform that they're trading on, are you seeing that activity? We've definitely seen robust demand for SoFi Invest. Um, you can buy individual stocks without commissions, fractional shares, which we pioneered, cryptocurrency and, and robo accounts. And it's the only place you can buy all four asset classes. If you wanted to buy um, robo account, cryptocurrency, and stocks on any other platform, you'd have to use at least two different apps to do so. And so we're a one-stop shop even within Invest. And we've seen robust demand since we launched, and that's only increased as interest rates have basically gone to zero on Fed funds rate. Um, and the stay-at-home uh, economy has also increased the amount of awareness of the importance of investing right. uh, in helping. So investors on the app are buying SoFi shares. That's what you're seeing. Sorry, I, I apologize. I thought you meant uh, SoFi Invest and its increased popularity. No. As, it relates to SoFi, as it relates to SoFi shares, I haven't had a chance to look at the trading volume today of our invest members that are buying it. We'll get that data at the end of the post today. My, my comments, just to be clear, were about the interest in SoFi Invest as a, as a product as opposed to SoFi the stock. All right, appreciate that. Hey, what do you, what do you make of the, the meme stock frenzy that we're seeing? And, and, and to what extent can you talk about what you're seeing on the platform right now in terms of the way that, 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 that people are trading shares at AMC and, and other meme stocks? Yeah, for, first on our platform, um, we're pretty unique in that we're really targeting beginning and and novice investors, and they're quickly coming up the curve. Um, but less than 1% of our SoFi Invest accounts uh, trade more than three stocks in a day, which is a great sign that people are focused on the long term as opposed to uh, day trading. Mm -hmm. And we try to educate them on not only that, but also dollar cost averaging. We've enabled functionality to do recurring investments um, so that they're, they're buying through the volatility over time as opposed to trying right. to time the market ever proven to be successful. Um, as it relates to meme stocks, it's just an, another phenomenon of the increased interest in, in retail investing because it's just become more accessible with being able to buy fractional shares and no, no commissions. Um, but people need to be educated on how to invest in the long term and, and make the individual choices for themselves. We actually don't offer options and margins yet. It's something that's in our longer term roadmap, but not really critical to our investors today. There's some demand for it, but we uh, we'll add it over time, but it's not the highest priority. So that's also pretty unique. All right. Great stuff. Um, thank you so much, Anthony. And, and hopefully we can catch up with you a little bit later this year for an update on the business. Anthony Noto, he's Chief Executive Officer at SoFi and former COO at Twitter, joining us on the phone from San Francisco. Of course, going public, trading on the NASDAQ uh, via SPAC today. You're listening to Bloomberg Business Week with Carol Masser and Bloomberg Quick Takes' Tim Stenovic on Bloomberg Radio. Uh, hey, listen, we want to talk about a story online at Business Week that uh, we do want to bring your attention to. It's about the shine coming off the golden child of tech. That golden child, of course, is Apple. So let's get into the story. Bloomberg News reporter Joe Light with us on the phone from our Washington, D.C. Bureau, along with Bloomberg Business Week editor Joel Weber right next to me in our interactive broker studio. Apple, yeah, it does feel like over the last couple of years, they have escaped the scorn <laughs> of the White House and regulators. Yeah, you know, that tech clash thing has been uh, for real, and everybody has felt it. And Apple hasn't. And yeah. then all of a sudden, they got dragged into sort of a mud fight. And that mud fight is, you know, just basically wrapped with the, the, the epic uh, lawsuit where Tim Cook actually took the stand. But it also just has made it feel like, oh, wait, Maybe maybe the luster has come off this this golden child of, of sorts. So so Joe, what it's that epic fight is not the only thing that Apple's been been fending with. What where does Apple find itself? 
Yeah, no, no. Apple is kind of getting hit on four fronts. You know, the first, as you mentioned, is this epic lawsuit. Um, the second, they were hauled in front of Congress uh, in April to answer questions from lawmakers around its app store and kind of accusations that it's, you know, anti-competitive, that they're not allowing enough competition to put programs onto iPhones. Then they've, in May, they faced, you know, kind of two issues. They face um, uh, as you said, Tim Cook, he actually took the stand in that epic trial and faced some of those antitrust accusations. And then the New York Times came out with an investigation about some of Apple's activities in China, which just brought a new wave of scorn from lawmakers who, you know, say that Apple was kind of sacrificing some of the privacy of its users in China in order to gain access to that um, to that market. So, as you said, it was kind of nothing at all for a few years, you know, during the Trump administration. Tim Cook had a, a very good relationship with Donald Trump. And now now all of a sudden you have all these things kind of hitting the company at once. So Which, what could go? Go ahead. Well, no, the only thing I was gonna say, I always thought that was unusual, like Tim Cook and Donald Trump. Like I tried to get my head around yeah. like, the visual. I'll never forget him standing next to the president mm-hmm. and not correcting him when he was making statements about the factory in, in Texas a few years ago. Right. Um, Joe, I'm, I'm, I'm wondering about potential worst case scenarios here for Apple um, among the, the, the many challenges that you you spoke about what's the worst case scenario for for apple here is it is it epic prevailing in this fight um so yeah so so the the epic lawsuit i mean apple could potentially you know lose some of its power over the app store if epic wins i mean the worst case scenario for apple is if it starts getting hit with antitrust lawsuits from governments you know wh- whether it's the whether it's the the federal government the bloomberg's reported that as as uh, as late as january um, DOJ investigators were interviewing a developer on the App Store. So clearly they're doing some sort of investigation around that. Um, some state governments have also brought lawsuits against those other companies, against Amazon, against Facebook, against Google. And if it starts getting hit with those sorts of antitrust lawsuits, I mean, that's where the real real pressure comes. I mean, all this lawmaker stuff, you know, they, they say mean things, but very rarely does it actually re- result in some sort of legislation. But, um, you know, these federal enforcers are completely completely different story. I think I think you're right there. Like, you know, it sounds good to talk mean and, you know, but it's another thing to actually like wield a stick, Joe. But, you know, one of the things that I wonder here is, do you feel that, you know, is it worse for Apple that, you know, face something, you know, on a one-on-one basis or to be sort of part of like a zone defense where you've got, you know, they get wrapped up in, uh, uh, things that might also affect the Amazons and, and and other and Facebooks of the world, you know, other tech companies. Well, I, I mean, I, I guess I guess you'd much rather be, you know, kind of one in a crowd of of people who are are facing ire. I mean, you know, in the same way, like, you know, you want to be like. If you're a zebra, you know, you kind of want to be in the middle of the herd and kind of blend in and hope that you're not the one that the lion takes down or, or whatever. But, the, you know, once they start facing this one-on-one scrutiny, you know, from these um, enforcers, I mean, one of the lessons we had from Microsoft, which faced its own antitrust scrutiny, um, you know, like 20 years ago, is Microsoft ultimately won that case. But because of the pressure, because they didn't want to be seen as to, um, you know, growing into other um, businesses that could face even more anti-competitive uh, scrutiny, they they missed out on some business. You know, people say that that's what gave Google the opening to become the giant th- that it became. So that, that's the sort of you know thing that Apple's going to want to avoid. You know, fight this scrutiny while also being aggressive in innovating and in business expansion. But you know, you also make a good point that you know ultimately even the pressure, the political pressure that 
Apple and some other tech companies have faced, you know, it's uncomfortable. It gives great fodder for us to talk about on radio and on TV and in Business Week magazine and online, but ultimately it didn't really hurt them too, fi- too much financially. Right. Yeah. So, so, so ultimately, the thing, the thing that you know, I'm sure Apple executives are going to want to avoid is where they decide, you know, not not to do something. You know, some, you know, what one of their one of their attorneys or even an executive in his own mind says, no, we're not going to we're not going to expand into that business line because we know that you know such and such investigator that'll be just another thing for this investigator or for this lawmaker um, to uh, to yell at us about. Um, so th- that's the sort of kind of you know self-editing of their business business that th- that could ultimately be the effect of um, you know all the scrutiny. Well, Joe, I think the, another challenge to think about from an antitrust perspective for for lawmakers is when it comes to Apple is how do you actually separate Apple's businesses or break up Apple's businesses? It's not like Amazon where you could you know like Elizabeth Warren has done in the past called for breaking off Zappos, or in some cases, people have said, and Scott Galloway on our show said, you know, the company AWS could be separated from Amazon or or Facebook divesting from WhatsApp, for example. It's not that simple with Apple's business. No, and, and, and one of the points that, um, you know, Tim Cook made in his testimony a, a couple of weeks ago was that, you know, the user experience in the App Store is, is pretty positive, right? Like, they don't face some of the mail, malware or security issues that more open systems face. So when, um, uh, you know, if, if lawmakers or if investigators ulti- or courts, you know, ultimately cause Apple to open up access to its marketplace, I mean, one of, the, one of the arguments Apple makes and one of the things these people want to avoid is making the user experience, you know, actually worse. Because, you know, the whole point of bring, bringing you know, bringing more competition to a marketplace is supposed to be that you make pricing and the experience, you know, better for consumers. If you actually have the opposite effect in bringing these cases, um, you know, that could cause a, you know, a backlash to some of the antitrust enforcement. Yeah, I'm just thinking about, you know, we're an Apple household because it's it all works together seamlessly. And you do wonder if you start pulling it apart, what happens? Music to Tim Cook's ears, Carol. <laughs> ka-ching, ka-ching. Uh, Joe Light, thank you so much. Reporter at Bloomberg News, uh, joining us from our Washington, D.C. Bureau. Check out his story and many others at uh, BloombergBusinessWeek.com. Jill Weber, our editor at Bloomberg Business Week, joining us here in studio. You're listening to Bloomberg Business Week with Carol Masser and Bloomberg Quick Takes Tim Stenovic on Bloomberg Radio. It's Bloomberg Business Week. Tim Stenovic and Carol Masser in the Interactive Broker Studio in New York. Bloomberg Business Week is brought to you by SEI. Asset managers don't get results that are off the charts when their solutions are off the shelf. Learn how SEI's operating platform can turn infrastructure into a competitive advantage at SEIC.com. Slash IMS. So, Tim, this story among our most read on the Bloomberg uh, at this hour about how employees are quitting instead of giving up working from home. This is on a day when Deutsche Bank launched its new remote working policy. So we've got a lot going on when it comes to how people come back to work. We're figuring it out, I guess, as we go. Here with more, Anders Mellon. He is wealth reporter at Bloomberg News. He's in our interactive broker studio. There is no, there was no playback playbook for the pandemic. There's no playbook for how we come back to work, right? That's right. I think... Every company is trying to figure out how to deal with this. Well, employees too, right? So tell us what you found out. So we are finding out that there are 
some people that feel so strongly about this that they're actually quitting their jobs uh, in some cases with other employment lined up and in some cases not or they're out looking for remote only opportunities because they just don't want to go back to the office it's generational though as you guys point out in in your story a survey of a thousand adults in the u.s showed that 39 percent would consider quitting if their employers weren't flexible but among millennials and Gen Z, that figure was 49%. That's according to a poll by Morning Consult on behalf of Bloomberg News. Right. So I think, you know, hard to paint with a broad brush. Uh, but, but I think generally, you know, reporting shows that younger generations tend to be more, you know, think more fondly of remote work, see the benefits of it, whereas... Older generations tend to be more a bit office mm. first. Well, younger generations may not have kids or mortgages either. <laughs> yeah, that's true. No, I mean, I do wonder about, you know, kind of where you are in life that determines kind of your, your bargaining position on all of this. But Anders, as you guys day in and day out report on this, we have constant conversations around the office about what companies are doing. And I do feel like there's just not one, one format fits all. I mean, is hybrid here to stay or, or what? I think companies themselves are asking that too. I feel like right now everybody's just looking at everybody else to see who's making the first move. Um, I think many look to Jamie Dimon, who of course made a very strong statement last month saying that should be in the office. I'm sick of Zoom calls. And with that, you get a trickle by the financial firms following. So, so it's financial firms that are like, if we focus on them, I feel like there's more of a push to be kind of back in the office. I, I mean, I would say so definitely from, from the bigger ones. But like you, we may have said earlier, Deutsche Bank came out today saying that there's mm -hmm. a hybrid model coming. So I feel like, again, it also might depend on who you consider your competitors to be, because if you're tech focused or want to be tech focused or if you have tech focused workers then you're competing with an industry where remote first has been decades uh, in, in the making and and who might be more prone to go fully remote well i wonder how much power employees have right now and how much power the worker has right now and i use the term worker totally understanding that there are different types of workers in this economy we have more than eight million people who are still unemployed and there are many businesses that say they're having trouble finding workers but based on the people you talk to how confident are they that they can find another job after quitting depends a bit on what, on what industry you're in um, but like you're saying there is a lot of movement going on at the moment um, surprising amount of movement uh, according to some experts and with that of course comes openings for um, and also uh, companies are seeing this as an opportunity to perhaps attract people that would be hard to get otherwise because you can all of a sudden offer up this perk that your larger perhaps wealthier yeah. rivals will just will not do unless you don't have that perk <laughs> right right <laughs> well it's also interesting in the story that you guys report um about how only about 28% of U.S. office workers are back at their at their buildings, according to an index of 10 metro areas compiled by uh, the security company Castle Systems. We're still kind of early in on the game in terms of people returning back to work. Our office feels a little bit more normal, but there's still a lot of missing workers. There definitely are. Right? But I think, I would think that will remain the case throughout the summer. But yeah. I feel like towards the end of the summer, companies will probably have put in place more solid policies for this and decided which route they're going to take, which in turn also workers will have had a couple of more months to think through what they really want to do and perhaps move as well. I'd also wonder too, Anders, if it means that these larger companies that have been vocal proponents for, uh, for working from the office for cultural reasons, for business reasons, they might change their tune a little bit if they start to see that not necessarily peers or competitors, but 
other companies that attract their workforce don't do that. Yeah, we spoke to um, one professor down at Texas A&M University who said that thing that if you are a company and you think that the world is not changing, you might be right, but you're taking a pretty big risk in making that assumption because you might just start seeing your people jump ship. Yeah, exactly. Or as somebody said to me earlier, listen, it may go back to the way it was. Like it's, we just don't know at this point, but it's interesting because you guys talk to a lot of individuals and one of the things that people want is more time. Like you lose time in commuting. I know that is certainly the case for my world. Like there's things you do benefit by, by not having to go to the office. Totally, commute, childcare, having more flexibility, freedom to work kind of when you want as opposed to set hours. Mm -hmm. It's something that, you know, we've shown for people that work from home for, for a year that, you know, it's something that we can manage largely. And um, many people are just not willing to give up those benefits. One of the things that I wonder too is though, as some people come back to work, others don't. I mean, no doubt about it. If you're in the office, you can easily get FaceTime with the boss. <laughs> yes, if your and boss is at the office. If your boss is at the office. But you wonder if at that point, whether that will have some sway on some of those workers who stayed home and said, well, wait a minute, I might miss out on some opportunities because it's just the way the world works. Yeah, and it's especially, could be especially perilous. Uh, one expert pointed out to me, if you're a younger worker, you're new in the game and being at home could be very isolating. You don't get FaceTime, you don't learn from older colleagues. So uh, yeah. there could be drawbacks for, for younger workers. I just think it's interesting because I think you go back six months, eight months, and everybody said, okay, this is changing. Our workforce is going to be changed forever. Or you go back a year and workers were scared to quit and right. try to find another job because they didn't know if they were going to get laid off in the next three weeks. Which I think means equals we still don't know. TBD. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Anyways, great reporters, uh, great reporting, and it's a great read. It's among the most read on the Bloomberg Terminal. So, Anders, thanks for stopping by. Thank you. Appreciate it. Anders Mellon. He's a wealth reporter here at Bloomberg News. Check him out at Mellon Anders. Anders. I always do that wrong. <laughs> Mellon Anders on Twitter. Uh, you're listening to Bloomberg Business Week. I'm driving in my car. I turn on the radio. How about you let me drive? Oh, no, 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 no. Who's gonna drive you home? Honey, please, I'll do the driving. Drive on. Excuse me, I want to drive. Just drive, baby. It's the question that drives us. This is the drive to the close. That funky music will drive us till the dawn. On Bloomberg Radio. All right, just got about 10 and a half minutes left into today's trading session. It is the first trading day of the week and the first trading day of the new month. Hey, let's get to it with Aaron Kennan, co-founder and chief executive officer at Clear Harbor Asset Management. Roughly $1 billion in assets under management on the phone from Stanford, Connecticut. Aaron, good to have you here. You know, it's interesting. I always love knowing about the assets under management, and I think it was up from the last time we talked to you. Is that just appreciation or is it new money coming in? I'm always curious. Well, it's a bit of both, Carol. Oh, okay. uh, good to be with you again. And uh, certainly the, the, the tailwinds of the market have assisted. But, you know, the work that we do in advising families and individuals and non-for-profits has been uh, an endeavor of ours where we have great passion. And uh, a lot of, you know, individuals during this time of uncertainty and economic uh, tumult have uh, sought advice. And we have uh, thankfully been the recipient of some of that. What kind of advice are they looking for? What are the questions that they come to you with? That's a great question, Tim. Uh, you know, it's everything from, gosh, I just sold 
this tech stock that I bought at almost zero several years ago, and is there any way for me to, you know, sort of allocate it in a tax-efficient manner? You know, maybe it's through an opportunity zone fund or some other strategy, or if it's a non-for-profit, it's, you know, a question about, you know, can you take a look at our investment policy statement, and are we, you know, looking through corporate governance issues correctly, and how about our capital allocation strategy, and do you think it represents our risk tolerance and our long-term objectives? And you know, the same for families, um, whether it's planning for retirement, planning for college, or just trying to preserve wealth relative to this great inflation debate. So all of these issues we, we tackle here at Clear Harbor. Hey, how many more people, um, Aaron, are saying, you know what, it's been a crazy year, I think I'm going to retire earlier? Because we've done this story at Bloomberg. I've certainly been talking with individuals in my own family and elsewhere who are like, you know what, you know, how much is just too much at this point, and <laughs> maybe I should just retire? It's interesting because I look at the labor participation rate, and that sort of speaks to the the issue that you you raise, which is some people are certainly doing that, and they're looking at themselves in the mirror, and they're realizing life is short, and perhaps now uh, now is a great time to retire. I'm not seeing that here, to be honest, at, at the firm. I mean, we have many retirees as clients, but I think those who who are working are are you know for the most part doing it because they're 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 driven. Uh, to achieve their their long term family financial goals, and they're to some extent passionate about what they do. So we're we're just not seeing that to a great extent. All right, let's get into the nitty gritty of the trade and 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 what you've been seeing as far as uh, trends over the last few months and what you see looking forward. Starting with inflation, the transitory or to be transitory or not to be transitory. <laughs> that is the question. And what's the answer? Well, that, well, you know, I think there's a lot of nuance here that, that requires um, peeling back the onion a bit. I mean, certainly we've had a huge supply chain disruption, the likes we haven't seen in our lifetime. And uh, now we're seeing demand roar back as the economies of the United States and the global economy general, generally reopen. And that requires, you know, the, the notion that the supply chain is just going to normalize overnight, I think, is is a naive one. And the, the idea that there's going to exist a supply response from every Every important input is also just not possible. So you look at something like uh, oil, uh, where supply can come back online uh, over the course of weeks, months, and quarters in a relatively robust fashion, um, versus copper, which is an important input, uh, has always been an important input, and even more so now that we're talking about the renewable initiatives in the economy, EV, which requires three times more copper, for example, than a combustion engine vehicle. Um, that requires uh, about an eight-year period of time to bring a full mine supply online. Now, of course, you have recyclable uh, copper that can come online. You have a mine expansion that can occur over, let's say, a two-year period. But if you want a robust supply to come online and, and something as important as copper, it can take as long as eight years. So the point there is that inflation variables are, are very nuanced. Some are going to normalize sooner than others. I think the Fed is fully aware of this which is why I think they're far less data-centric, uh, uh, focused, and much more sort of time-focused, realizing that many of these supply chain uh, issues, whether it's semiconductors, oil, uh, and, and others, it will take several quarters to bear themselves out. And I think we're going to have a, a clearer picture by the end of the year, Tim. All right, Aaron, this is kind of a wacky question, but the meme stocks, whether it's AMC or others, how much of that comes up with your conversations with some of your institutional or, or you know, private wealth um, clients? Uh, for example? AMC. AMC. 
Oh, oh, the meat stocks. Yeah. yeah. Uh, sorry, I didn't, didn't hear that. No, okay. um, not not significantly. I mean, I think there are clearly there's a human uh, sort of desire to you know peer onto uh, proverbial screens, and and maybe there's a temptation to. Uh, to chase some of these things, but uh, and I understand that, but uh, we're we're not really seeing that. We're we're not receiving phone calls uh, from people that uh, want to own these sorts of things, and we are discretionary managers on behalf of clients, mm-hmm. but we have intimate financial conversations. We're we're just not not seeing that uh, to a great extent. What about when it comes to cryptocurrency? Are are they asking questions about whether cryptocurrency, Bitcoin, should be part of their portfolio? Certainly seeing more of that, um, and we're having some really um, interesting conversations with many clients about sort of the evolution of uh, centralized, you know, sort of decentralized finance and the importance of the blockchain and its application and, and why Bitcoin and Ethereum, for example, could be the beneficiaries of this not only today but into the future. And, of course, we've seen a major correction in that segment of the the marketplace, but uh, while the vast majority of our clients have uh, zero exposure to uh, cryptocurrencies, we are seeing a sort of an incipient level of conversation occurring here at the firm. Hey, any thoughts about the monthly jobs report and how that might impact kind of investor psyche? Yes, I mean, it's been extraordinarily noisy, right? And I think Mm -hmm. it's going to continue to be because you have a bunch of dynamics at play. One is the um, the unemployment bonuses are, are continuing to roll uh, into bank accounts for millions of Americans, and that will not stop until September. So you have, you know, sort of that, that issue to deal with. And, uh, and uh, you also have the, the whole schooling uh, concern where people are at home with their children, and not everyone works in an industry where they can, you know, sort of telecommute, right? And so right. Uh, we're seeing help wanted ads at restaurants, and yet more people in the service sector are unemployed now than they were pre-COVID. And I think this dynamic is, again, going to sort itself out probably in the fourth quarter, Carol, when the uh, bonus top-ups uh, dissipate and, uh, and people get back to work. I'm, I'm wondering about, I don't know, it, it's like the conversation has shifted so much in recent months about trying to get those employees back to work. How closely are you watching wage inflation as a sign of of inflation being not transitory? Because if we do continue to see employees sitting on the sidelines, employers are going to have to start raising those wages. That's right. And and I think this is the the, the big question of the moment. And and, and my own personal view is that the Fed has been critiqued for maybe not responding, but I think they're fully aware that we have supply chain bottlenecks and we have government fiscal policy. Again, you know, the unemployment bonus payments, which are impacting decisions on the part of potential workers to either work or not work. Um, and, of course, this sort of schooling issue, right? And so I think you're seeing wage inflation. My guess is that part is more transitory, particularly in the sort of unskilled right. or lower-skilled service segment of the economy. Um, right. The the the, the, uh, the facts of all of this uh, will come out in the, in the quarters ahead. Yeah, we'll certainly, uh, and we're looking for it. And I think investors are kind of looking forward to it as well. Hey, Aaron, thank you so much. Aaron Cannon, co-founder, CEO of Clear Harbor Asset Management, roughly one billion in assets under management, on the phone from Stanford, Connecticut. Thanks for listening to Bloomberg Business Week. Download the podcast on iTunes, SoundCloud, or Bloomberg.com. And you can also listen to our radio show at 2 p.m. Eastern on Bloomberg Radio or watch us on YouTube. Search Bloomberg Global News.